Let us open the precious Word of God to Isaiah, the 11th chapter. Isaiah chapter 11. Thank you, Lord, for Isaiah chapter 11. Bless us in it. Isaiah chapter 11. You know, in chapter 9, we had reference to the king that we're going to read about in chapter 11. In verses 6 and 7, it said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Amen. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Amen. Then in chapter 10 and verse 27, And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. God spared Jerusalem, and God spared the remnant within the walls of Jerusalem because of the anointing of David for the Lord Jesus Christ, that David's son would sit on the throne of his kingdom. This is called the sure mercies of David, as Isaiah 55 and verse 3 will teach us quoted by Paul in Acts chapter 13 as to why Jesus could not remain in the tomb because it's the sure mercies of David. And that is why we sang, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. That has nothing to do with your daily life. That has everything to do with the Son of God on His throne. And with those two chapters leading us, we come to chapter 11. And I, for the sake of time, am not going to delay any further. We will begin section 1, which is verses 1 through 5. And I read to you Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Amen, amen and amen. Verse 1 is not difficult. Verse 1 is about the dynasty that began with Jesse 
of Bethlehem through his son David. Jesse had eight sons, but God liked one of them. God liked David. And I pray that each of you will be those that God liked. And he chose David, the eighth son of eight sons, to be his chosen one that would be the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it describes in plant terms that the stem, the trunk of Jesse, a rod's going to come out of it. A branch is going to grow out of Jesse's roots. Roots. Yeah. We believe in roots. But it's David's roots. And it's Jesse's roots. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care what my roots are very much in comparison to the roots of Jesse and David and the Lord Jesus Christ. Men waste time parsing the words rod, stem, branch, and roots. I will not be so foolish for you. Because verse 1 is easy. It's Jesus is the son of David. And he's going to come into the world. That's all you need to know about verse 1. Jesus was and is a man. He had an, an earthly mother, and he was Joseph's son legally. He was of the flesh, made according to the seed of David, and this is a principal and fundamental point of doctrine of the New Testament gospel. Jesus is the son of David. The last chapter of your Bible continues to call Jesus the son of David, the root and offspring of David. Jesus was never ashamed of David as his father in the flesh because David was a great king. David was a man after God's own heart and the Lord Jesus Christ was both to the superlative degree. Amen. He is tied. The Lord Jesus Christ is tied to the first woman because it's the seed of the woman that would come. And he is tied to the Virgin Mary because that was his biological mother, and he is tied to all women. In 1 Timothy 2.15, Nevertheless, she shall be saved in childbearing. Not her childbearing. God lets elect women die in childbirth like he lets pagan women die in childbirth. But there is one childbirth that every woman ought to take great comfort in, and that's the childbirth of Mary giving birth to Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. And so we have in verse 1 a, a description in metaphorical language of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh related to David and his father Jesse. Let's get to verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Without distracting you, Jesus was the Word of God made flesh. So Jesus, we call sometimes the God-man, because the fullness of the Godhead was in him bodily. But Jesus, as a man, grew in wisdom. He did not know everything by his conception. He did not know everything by birth. He did not know everything at 12. He did not know everything when he died. 
But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, not even the Son. But the Spirit of God came on Jesus Christ like no other at His baptism and remained there. And this is a description of that event. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. Holding your place at all times at Isaiah, and if you have one of those long black strings like this, you may put it there so that you can keep your place. But look at Psalm 45 with me. Psalm 45 and the seventh verse. Psalm 45. We are wanting to understand a little bit more about the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That means it would come and stay. John the Baptist was given a word of wisdom from the Almighty God that when you're baptizing, when you baptize my Messiah, my son, the Spirit will descend in the form of a dove upon him and stay there. And in John chapter 1, John tells us about that verse, that word of wisdom that he had. And when he saw that happen to Jesus Christ, he knew that that was the Messiah. Psalm 45 and verse 7, thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. This is speaking of Jesus the King. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee because of the anointing, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Jesus didn't have some Samuel come to him with some horn of oil and pour it on his head like was poured on the head of his father David. God Almighty poured the oil of gladness upon him. Let's go to Hebrews 1 and verse 9 to see this fulfilled. Hebrews chapter 1. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. There we have that oil in both places, old and new, coming upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back a few books to John chapter 3 and verse 34. And let's read there what it says. John 3, 34. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. John 3, 34. How much Spirit did Jesus get without measure? How long was the Spirit with Jesus? Forever. Amen. Our mediator has the power of the Holy Spirit for wisdom forever. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He was anointed at his baptism. As soon as his baptism was over, he was tempted of the devil. He came back to Nazareth. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up. He read Isaiah 61. He sat down. He said, this day are these words fulfilled in your midst. What were those words? The Spirit of the Lord hath anointed me. Right. And there it is. There's much more that could be said. There's much more that could be said. The Holy Spirit is with the Lord Jesus Christ like no other. The Holy Spirit is with the Lord Jesus Christ and under His direction. So much that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ twice. In Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4, though the Spirit had to come upon Jesus for Jesus to receive the Spirit and rest upon Him, He is under the direction of the head of the church and He can direct His Spirit and He can remove His candlestick from a church. 
the seven spirits of God before the throne of God, representing the spirit in each church, Jesus Christ can say, repent, or I will come unto thee quickly and take away thy candlestick and remove him out of his place. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to present a king so much better than David. David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Jesus never had that worry. Take thy Holy Spirit from me. Jesus Christ is our king. He's our savior. He sits on a throne. He reigns at this hour in a citadel and a fortress and a city which is above called Mount Zion and called the heavenly Jerusalem. And it's being, he's being described here at this fleshly man that came out of a sinful family of Jesse and David, but the spirit rested upon him and look at what that spirit did for him. The spirit, what is the spirit, first of all, toward Jesus? The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. If we had no time limits, if life went on forever, if it was heaven, we would parse each one of these six descriptions of the Holy Spirit and milk it for all that it's worth. We would polish it until our faces could be seen in the polished brass. But we're going to go quickly. And I hope that it will be enough for you. If you want more, there is more. You may see and look at it later. Let's look at, there's six descriptions here of the Holy Spirit without parsing them at all. Just thinking about the Holy Spirit and wisdom and knowledge and understanding, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3 tells us that in Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ knew everything. He could discern men's hearts, and He knew the answer. He was made of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He could look at any situation and give God's answer for it. What a king! Every time we read about our rulers, we must subject our spirits to the rule of God's word to give honor because they are subject to all the ignorance, malice, bias of other men. But for the grace of God and the office and the counselors they have around them, there is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. There has never been anyone like the Lord Jesus Christ. There has never been a president or a king, a husband or a father, a boss or a pastor, anything like the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Wisdom is the power of right judgment. Understanding is the ability to grasp all circumstances and their impact on a situation, event, or dilemma. Counsel is the ability to convey wisdom to others. Might is the courageous strength to execute wisdom. Knowledge is the awareness of all facts pending on an event or situation. And the fear of the Lord is the perfect grasp of God's will and God's worship for the sake of this context. I know I said those things very quickly. When the Lord Jesus Christ preached, he took apart the wisdom of his generation, like in the Sermon on the Mount. And when he got to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, the people were astonished. For he spake as one having authority and not 
as one of the scribes and Pharisees. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. There is so much that could be said from verse 2, but we want the picture of the 11th chapter. If you want the details, I have worked up the details for you. I want you to see 11 together. And this spirit would give him those six things. The power of right judgment, grasping all pertaining circumstances, the ability to convey it to others, the strength and courage to execute it, the knowledge of all facts, and how God expects to be obeyed and worshipped. And we come to verse 3. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. The Lord would make him of quick understanding, knowing exactly the will of God and the proper worship of God. Quick under- Listen, when Jesus was asked a question, how many times did he invoke Proverbs 15, 28 and say, the heart of the righteous studieth to answer, could you give me a day? Did Jesus ever say that? Did he ever say, could you give me an hour? Did he ever say, could you give me a minute to think on that and consult with my apostles? He could answer anything they brought him. They were trying to trap him all the time. They had the most learned men trying to trap the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was of quick understanding. It didn't matter whether it was the woman taken in adultery and him being able to see their legal fallacies in the whole matter or them asking about tribute to Caesar when he was a Jew and had the Old Testament as as his constitution. He could answer every one of them. It didn't matter that it was a Sadducee that said, there was this man, there was this woman, and a man with six brothers, and the seven of them married her in succession. Whose wife will she be in heaven? You know, we might have asked for a week or a day or an hour to have thought up an answer. We would say, I need to go to my online Bible and check it out. Jesus didn't have to do any of that. He was of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. When he walked into the temple and saw the, the legitimate business of making money, changing money, and selling animals for sacrifice, he would tear it apart and make a scourge to do so and it's because the zeal of the Lord's house had eaten him up, he knew that was the right thing to do all the time. And so what a king we have. Lord God in heaven, we thank thee for thy son. We rejoice in thy son that we have a king such as him who will own us as his children, who considers us his body, who considers us the fullness of him that filleth all in all. We thank thee for him. He'll judge He'll be of quick understanding in verse 3. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes. Most people only reason in terms of black and white based on things seen or heard. It is a terrible travesty of men to, to think in black and white terms by what you see or hear. That is ignorance at the height of human ignorance. Wisdom is not black and white. And wisdom is not what you see or hear. Wisdom is all the other circumstances that you need to take into account. And that is why it says in Ephesians chapter 5 that real wisdom and walking in wisdom and not being foolish is to be circumspect by looking at all angles, impinging or, or affecting a case. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was that way. You know, he taught us to be that way 
in John chapter 7 where he said, judge righteous judgment and don't judge by appearance because things will look a certain way and if you come to a conclusion by how they look, you're wrong. You're wrong. You need to think out every angle of it. If you were to have seen David eating the showbread after three days on the road, dirty, unkept, you know, guys away from their jobs, you'd have said, you can't eat that showbread. Well, that's Jesus is far superior to you, and so was David. Don't forget that about David. David ethically knew a lot of things that we get troubled with. David knew when to lie. He's the number one liar in the Bible, second to the devil only. But David never lied like the devil. But David knew when to lie to protect life over and over and over. It's in the Word of God for us. And he was the man after God's own heart because he did not judge after the sight of his eyes. You know, there are so many people ethically confused today about how to live in this changing gay society, LGBT society that we live in, but they need to learn the Bible and not judge everything by sight and what they hear. And so the Lord Jesus Christ didn't. And there is so much more that could be said about that. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, so beautiful. You know, a Pharisee would look at the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. And in his mind, in his eyes, in his ears, it's all about blood and it's all about flatline. He, he sees a monitor in a, in a hospital room and it goes flatline. That's all he can think of is murder. But Jesus Christ comes along and expands that murder, expands that murder to being angry with anyone without a cause, to calling anyone a fool without a righteous cause. Wow. That's not judging after the sight or what you hear. And you know the whole Sermon on the Mount's that way. You know, there could be a man out praying in the streets, lifting up his voice on high, and you would say, look at the zeal of that man. And Jesus said, that prayer isn't getting any higher than his hair piece. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 3, he's going to be able to know the fear of the Lord immediately for every situation. And he was confronted with numerous situations that were traps intelligently designed by conspiracies against him. He would not judge just after his sensory perception of what's going on around him, but he would judge with wisdom. Verse 4, with righteousness shall he judge the poor. There's a but there for a reason. That but is a disjunctive saying that when you judge by what you see or what you hear, you're judging wrong. There's more to every situation. <clears throat> but with righteousness shall he judge the poor. Jesus wouldn't judge that way. He would be of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, which is righteous thinking and righteous wisdom. And he would judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that. He protected the poor. He judged to the superlative degree what King Lemuel's mother told him to do in Proverbs chapter 31 when she said to her son the king, lift up your voice for all that are in trouble and deliver them. And Jesus did that. He rescued the adulteress from the legal corruption of the Jewish rulers. He blasted the hypocrisy of the Jews for their long prayers to fleece widows. That's Matthew 23, 14. In a King James Bible, it doesn't exist in other English versions. Whether little believing children that were brought to him by their parents or the Canaanite woman, Jesus defended the poor. He saw a widow giving two mites and exalted her above all those rich givers 
in context in Luke 21. Jesus then, according to verse 4, he would smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. We love to read Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 is when they brought trap after trap against the Lord Jesus Christ and he answered them all in succession. And at the end of Matthew 22, it says, they durst ask him no more questions. Then, since they wouldn't talk to him anymore, he thought he would take the pulpit. So Matthew 23 is Jesus in the pulpit against the Pharisees. Woe unto you, serpents, vipers, whited sepulchers. Are you able to read with the spectacles of the New Testament than Old Testament prophecy like this? Are you able to do that? Are you able to look at verse 4? With righteousness shall he judge the poor. I've just given you several examples. And reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, defending, listen, the whole crowd cried, Hosanna in the highest. The son of David is here. They tore their clothes off, threw it in the streets. And the Pharisees said, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, if I were to tell them to be quiet, the rocks would cry out. Right. That's defending the poor and the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 23 and other places. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Jesus and his doctrine crushed the foolish errors of men. The Sermon on the Mount was a fabulous paradigm correction of the Pharisees. Jesus' religion presented in Matthew 5 through 7 is incredibly different and superior to the Pharisees. There's the rod of his mouth coming out. Ye have heard by them of old time, but I say unto you, 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 reproving them, correcting them, slicing them, as he should have and as he did. With authority, he rebuked the Jews for turning the temple into a den of thieves. With authority, he told the Jews they would burn and his kingdom would go to Gentiles. With authority, he told the Jews they were not of his sheep to gain eternal life. With authority, he told Caiaphas and rulers they would see him coming in power. With authority, he told the Jewish leaders they could not escape the damnation of hell. With authority, he mocked their phylacteries, their praying, their fasting, their giving, and their vows, everything about them. That is our king. And he's the head of this church. And I love being his least ambassador. Because to be his ambassador is an incredible privilege. And for you to hear and read and see his word about his kingdom is an incredible privilege for you. Amen. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. A girdle was something they bound around their middle. Your loins are the middle part of your body. To gird up their long flowing loose garments for movement. Righteousness would govern every move he made as a king and ruler of his kingdom. And righteousness would be the girdle of his reins. Every thought and affection inside him was bound up in righteousness. That is what the verse means. So I get to go to verse section 2, okay? Section 2. I got, uh, there's a reason. Listen, I want to remind you. I'm an able minister of the New Testament. When it comes to the old, I am not going to take the same speed that I would in Hebrews, John, or Romans. It's the Old Testament, so we go faster. 
and you should already understand section one. You should be able to look at any one of those verses and see the Lord Jesus Christ and shout glory Amen. for what a king and leader we have. Right. So we come to section two, verse six through nine. The wolf also, hint, hint, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. A, verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen and amen. amen. Follow with me. Some rules of interpretation to help us avoid the legion of lies taught from this passage. The timing is final by the context on both sides of this section. The first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. Paul used that in Romans chapter 15 and verse 12. So the following section is about the first coming of Jesus Christ. The first section is about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And there shouldn't be a thought to the contrary in your minds. Right. According to the flesh, Jesus would be raised up of the seed of David, and he would do all those things in his first coming because that is when the Holy Spirit was put upon the Lord Jesus Christ of the family of David and Jesse. The timing, by context on both sides, is the New Testament gospel era. The also, the third word in this sixth verse, ties this section to the previous one. It is a strange word, and you ought to look at it. Have there been any other animals mentioned before the wolf of verse 6? No. So what is the also therefore? Because the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ would be in wisdom and in righteousness and in peace. The also ties this section to that section that by the Holy Spirit, we're going to have a righteous reign by our King and His gospel will be righteous and it will be in the fear of the Lord and we will be at peace with each other by his orders, the orders of the high king of heaven. In that day of verse 10, ties this section right here in front of us to the next by a demonstrative adjective, in that day. What day? It's a day that's already been covered. It's the day of the first coming of Jesus Christ with a description of peace as we have it by those 17 different animals and persons com combined together. In that day. What day? The day in the context. The gospel era of the New Testament kingdom of Jesus Christ. The timing is connected to God's holy mountain and worldwide knowledge in verse 9. When was the gospel preached to the whole world? Before 70 AD. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness. Then shall the end come. And when I say Matthew 24, you know what end is there, don't you? It is the end of Jerusalem. The character of the reign of David's son by the Holy Ghost is the key, which we just covered in the first five verses. 
wisdom, understanding, righteousness, equity, peace, love, unity. It's all tied together. The reign of our king. Who wants to live in a kingdom where your king is superlatively wise so that anyone that brings a problem before him gets the perfect answer and yet the kingdom is all in turmoil. There's civil war going on. Men are killing each other. That's not the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's one of great peace. It's one of changed character. It's one of changed natures. The conversion of Jews and Gentiles by the gospel is the divine event. It's in verses 10 through 12, which is section 3, and we're not going there yet, but verses 10 through 12 are describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and we know when that happened. Acts chapter 15 tells us that it was by the ministry of Peter to Cornelius and it was by the ministry of the Apostle Paul that Gentiles were converted. I have to go through all this. Don't ever let anybody try to tell you that verses 6 through 8 and those 17 animals and persons have to do with some millennial kingdom in the Middle East where you'll break down cages and take away fences so that animals can try to crossbreed. It all makes me sick. you got to understand I grew up with that junk. Because we weren't taught. I am so sick of little children lying in a lion's den on some big soft lion. I agree that he'd make a great bed as long as he didn't purr. Listen, if a lion purred, your spleen would shut down. <laughs> but the pictures, I'm so tired of them. They're in Bible story books and they're in Bibles. They're jammed into Bibles. So you get to Isaiah 11, you flip it, and there's this cardboard thick picture in there of animals with each other. That wouldn't be an accomplishment of anything. Listen, a lion eating grass, what does that prove? They did it for 1,656 years before the flood. That's no real change of nature. He had to have his nature changed to eat flesh. Oh, there's a bigger change in nature. The character. So it's the character of the kingdom that we're looking at. The character of Jesus Christ's reign in his kingdom. And the conversion. And remember, the prophets used similitudes. They tell us that. The prophets used similitudes in their ministries. That is what Hosea 12.10 tells us. Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah. They used similitudes, similes, comparisons, likenesses, metaphors, signs, symbols, but not to be taken literally. The ignorance to take these passages literally and the malice and the ruin and the heresy of the doctrines they come up with. Our fathers in the faith never had a question about these verses. Never had a question. They understood them to be a characteristic of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ of making peace and unity. It wasn't until the middle of the 1800s that these dispensationalist, premillennialist Zionists all got together. Because this is supposedly some Jewish millennial kingdom in the Middle East. There's 17 creatures to illustrate one similitude, one large similitude that we might be able to see some little aspects of as we look at the whole. For a person reading and believing this far in the book of Isaiah, you've already had this given to you. Please turn to Isaiah chapter 2. This is why 
I, I ask you to review. I review. I'm shocked at how much I forget. Sherry reviews. It takes 18 minutes to listen to five chapters of Isaiah with Scorby reading it to you. Put it on your big screen. Crank up the font until it le leaps off the screen at you. And go through it. Go through it again. Because we've already covered this. Oh yeah, brother, you better be nodding. I want to shout on Wednesday night when you got up with your passage from Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 and verse 2, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. Gentiles being converted to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament. John started it. Jesus continued it. The apostles took it to the Gentiles. That's verse 2. That's the New Testament gospel era kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. And that's what we are doing today, right here. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. It's a spiritual religion. It's a spiritual kingdom. And we're preaching on behalf of our king sitting on the throne. Verse 4, And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's not the nation in its entirety. That's the elect out of every nation. God doesn't care about the nations of this world. He cares about the elect out of every nation. The elect out of every nation were, were reproved and were judged, and they beat their swords into plowshares. The change that the gospel made, just give me a minute to get to it. The change that the gospel made is enormous. It's enormous in me. I am the cockatrice nest. I am the hole of the asp. When your children come near me, and they come to hug me? You don't know. You may wonder sometimes, what's the pastor up to? Because they can play with me anytime they want to. And I'm not going to bite their heads off. Even though I like foolishness and noise. Not very much. <laughs> but I love them. Josiah, when you come and talk to me, it blesses me. When you want to tell me that there were four good kings in Judah, David, let me see if I got it right, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, and that fourth one was, ah, Josiah. <laughs> you can lead me around like I have a ring in my nose. You can lead me. Gabriel, when you got up in this pulpit and stood in a chair and cut loose from John chapter 12, that until a seed is put in the earth and dies, it can't bring forth much fruit. I, I do remember. Because you led me. You set the timing. What is the context right. for verses 6 through 9? I've just given you a, a number of ways to look at it. The context is the gospel era of the New Testament kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His kingdom is in wisdom. His kingdom is in righteousness. And His kingdom is in peace. And what's 12 going to teach us? His kingdom is in joy. So we have Romans chapter 14 given to us a long time ago. 
the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Beautiful, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The foolish, ignorant, or malicious. I can't tell sometimes reading them or watching their films. The foolish, ignorant, or malicious Zionists have made a monstrosity from this section. They took it from the Jews because the Jews want to be literalists. They always wanted a literal, earthly kingdom. They did not want a spiritual kingdom that God gave them in Jesus Christ. Paul warned against Jewish fables in Titus chapter 1 and verse 14. Dispensationalists as they are, always in love with the Jews, the blindest of men on earth, the greatest Christ haters on earth, follow the Jews in their literal interpretation of this passage. Futurists envision, envision Jew, zoos being eliminated, as I have already said. Their ability is limited to drawing their fantasies, for they cannot interpret Scripture. They choose to deny Jesus his reign like the murderous Jews before them. Luke 19, 14, we will not have this man to reign over us. Thirteen verses later, when Jesus ended that parable, what did he say? And those men that said, I could not rule over them, bring them before me and slay them before me. Right. That is my king. Amen. That is what he thinks of Zionists. And that's what he thinks of premillennialists in their doctrine. Bring them before me and slay them. I want to see them die for trying to steal my throne and crown and reign from me. That's my king. That's my king. We know from many angles that Jesus has been reigning as king for 2,000 years. It's only Jewish fables or willful ignorance to think that he's waiting to be crowned. Here's the truth, brethren. Here's the truth of this passage, this, this section, these four verses. Jesus' spiritual reign would change the hurtful, violent nature of men. This is the truth. This is the lesson in brief. Jesus' spiritual reign would change the hurtful, violent nature of men. The Holy Spirit put the truth in plain sight if any man will read to the end of verse 9. Verse 9 of Isaiah 11. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. What's the holy mountain? The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is a coordinating conjunction there telling us that it's the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it goes out among the Gentiles that they beat their swords into plowshares and all got along with the Jews and all got along with each other though there had been great animosity, enmity, and violence in the past. Jesus would rule righteously and faithfully but also with harmony and peace. That is the connection. The animosity and enmity among nations would disappear like we read in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Jesus would take away long-standing envy and vexation. Look at verses 13 and 14 that we're going to get to. Verse 13, the envy also of Ephraim shall depart. Ephraim, the ten tribes, always envied Judah because Judah had Jerusalem. Judah had David and his family tree. Right. They had the temple of God. They had the worship of God. They had the priesthood. Ephraim, the ten tribes, always envied. There was, do you remember that we've been reading that they get together with the Syrians to destroy Judah? The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah against Ephraim shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. Judah shall not vex Ephraim. What in the world's going to make that change? They hated each other. The day that Rehoboam stood up and said, 
My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. We're going to raise taxes. From that day, there was a civil war going on in that nation. What's going to take it all away? So that they're all sitting together side by side in pews, singing the same songs together for the mutual king. It's the change in character and nature of men. But, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The character and nature of men is hateful, selfish, destructive, and violent. Paul said in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3, For we also ourselves were once foolish, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Right. Paul admitted that to Titus about the character that he had by nature. The regenerating grace and power of Christ changes men. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We were at war with authority. We were at war with everything, everyone. But we, he quickened us and changed us by his grace. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What is his good pleasure in Philippians chapter 2? Do I need a quizzer to stand up and tell us something? In Philippians chapter 2, what is his good pleasure? It is that we would be harmless and blameless without murmurings and without disputings. That's the change in nature that he has worked in us by his glory. What a king. When you can change the character and nature of your citizens to all love each other and to have perfect wisdom for them and to always be executing righteous judgment, whether it's in action or in his affections inside. The glorious truth and wisdom of his gospel changes men. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. If you're not new, you're not in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is what happens when the gospel comes. I understand 2 Corinthians 5.17, not vital, but practical. I have preached it that way to you before because of its context. It is a choice to follow the rules of the kingdom of heaven. Choose to do it this day. Did you hear Heinrich? Repent and choose the narrow way. The wide way is letting your emotions run. Your emotions are nothing but dangerous dung from the devil. Get off your emotions. Make an intelligent choice by faith and follow the Lord in his gospel. And that's to live at peace with each other. The glorious gospel changes men. It can make us partakers of his divine nature in the way that we live. 2 Peter chapter 1. Do you, know that we could, do you know that every one of these sections could be preached as a series? And I, Yes, I'm struggling with that fact, but I'm still going, and you're still sitting, and you're going to stay there for a little while. I'll make it up in the second service, maybe. Uh, 12 is shorter. 12 is shorter. 12 is cer certainly exciting. That was the truth I just gave you. This interpretation is plain and obvious to anyone that will read chapter and section before drawing a little effeminate lad in pajamas feeding Skittles to a huge grizzly. <laughs> there is peace and safety for all in a New Testament gospel kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. There should never be envy, strife, divisions, or schisms. Christians hate all disunity. They want unity. They want peace. Here's the distraction. Isaiah used three verses of similitudes to illustrate the one rule. And these 17 creatures, let's count them, six, let's go, wolf, lamb, leopard, we're up to three, kid, calf, young lion, we're up to six, fatling, and little child, we're up to eight, cow, bear, ten, young ones, let's call it 11, lion, 
12, ox, 13, sucking child, 14, asp, 15, weaned child, 16, cockatrice, 17. There we are, 17 creatures of God combined together to teach us that God can change the nature of a lion. God, listen, how many women in here love venomous snakes? Let me see a show of hands. If anybody raises the, I'll meet you at lunchtime. But uh, you hate snakes. Can God change a snake to where your sucking child could play on its hole and your weaned child could go play at its nest? Can God? We're all here today. And uh, I'm the asp. I'm the cockatrice by nature. I am a loner of loners. Do you, need to, do you need me to say those ugly words again? I hate people. I hate people, so God chose me to be a pastor. And he changed my nature. My sweet little wife wouldn't hurt a flea in the past. I remember one time, long, long, long time ago, early in my ministry, where there was a snake in our midst, and she would come into my office, just throw him out. You, don't you dare dislike her. If you knew the situation, you'd say, I agree with Sherry. Um, I said, God sent me. God sent me to be a shepherd and to try to save, not to destroy. And I'm going to try my best to save. And uh, that's all by the grace of God. Because trust me, I'm, no, I'm nowhere near her. You always, my, my boys know, my sons know that they should go talk to their mother rather than to me. In certain ways, certain ways. Isaiah 11. Here's the distraction. These 17 creatures and their combinations get people distracted. If you wish to study each animal, I'm not going to waste my time nor your time doing it. You should join the Girl Scouts and buy a commentary. These 17 different animals, they, there's the, the, the value that you would derive if you could make a distinction between them. You know, if you can make a distinction between a leopard and a lion, and, and if you can make a distinction between an ox and a fatling and, and those different points, you know, it's going to be so minor that it's going to distract you. That's why I'm calling it, this is a distraction. Because the real issue, what is the lesson? And the lesson is, God changes the nature of creatures. God changes the character of creatures. God changes the conduct of creatures. And he's changed our conduct. And he asks us to further change our conduct that we will be more and more like him in peace, love, and unity with each other. Love is the greatest. That's this, so it's a distraction. There's not a single creature listed that you need to study beyond basic knowledge. You want to know what an asp and cockatrice are? They are snakes. Happy now? What if they were black widow spiders? Would that change the interpretation? None. I am just trying to save you. If you want to dive into verses 6 through 8 and miss the lesson, because the lesson is in verse 9, but if you want to dive into verses 6 through 8 and miss, you're welcome to it, but I'm going to try to save you from it. That is why we get little pictures. Because you read these 17 things over and over, and you've got to think that there's some literal application to them. No, there isn't. This is just a similitude of changed natures, and the nature of these animals is contrary to the settings and combinations that they're put in. The wolf and the lamb, wolves eat lambs. But the wolf 
shall dwell with the lamb. They'll be able to get along with the helpless little lamb not being a meal for the wolf. That's a change, a huge change in nature. Lambs don't like wolves. Lambs run away from wolves. Wolves eat lambs. And that happens among men. There are men that are like wolves. They're ravenous. They're inconsiderate. They're selfish. They're cruel. They grew up that way. Their families are that way. And they want to eat people. But God changes us. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. What's the difference between the first clause and the second clause? I don't know of any. And I don't even want to learn any. Because I don't want to miss the lesson. It's the lesson that counts. God changes the nature in his kingdom. And if we are going to be in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, we better have a changed nature. Therefore, if any man, I'm going to say it again. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Listen to this. James 5, 9. Grudge not one against another. Any of you that hold grudges, it's because you have a devilish heart. Listen to the warning. Grudge not one against another. Brethren, lest ye be condemned, behold, the judge standeth before the door. That's my king. My king wants this church in peace. Your pastor committed to preach on brotherly love or peace once a quarter for the entirety of his ministry because of the value of this to serve my king as his ambassador. So there's a distraction. The most cruel, violent, and destructive creatures are matched with the vulnerable and weak in these verses. The calf and the young lion. A young lion would love to play with a young calf, just like cats like to play with with a mouse in the house of the basement of the yard. And the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. I just gave you an illustration of a couple little children. They can lead me. I'll listen to them. Gabriel, you were dynamic up here. And you were scriptural. And you were spiritual. And it was powerfully done. It moved me. Do you remember? I hope you can quote that thing to me at break time. The cow and the bear shall feed. Cows and bears don't eat the same thing necessarily. Bears have no... Kindness in them at all. That's what a bear is known for in the Bible. They'll feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. Can you see one family from one nature, one culture, one race, one economic background saying, I don't want you to play with their children. I don't want you to play with their children. But see, look at here. All the children are playing together. And all our children play together because we're all part of the same family in God. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So there's a lion in here. Oxen aren't dangerous. They've had their dangerous parts removed, and those parts are two, and I hope you're able to understand me. That's what makes them dangerous. Oxen are not dangerous, but a lion is dangerous, but the two of them are eating the same thing. Are there lions and are there oxen sitting here being fed by the same pulpit? That's Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. Are you the safest member in the church? Are you the safest member in the church? The one least likely to ever hurt another? Do you do all in your power to make peace among all members at all times? Then you're not part of Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom are peacemakers. They want this to be the happiest, most united, most loving 
body of people on earth. Here's the fulfillment. Converts and churches of the New Testament fulfilled the section perfectly. What happened to a Gadarene after he met our king? He sat down in his right mind and went out and published the gospel, Mark chapter 5. What about the good Samaritan and the selfish lawyer? Did Jesus get a point across to the selfish lawyer to, go, to cross cultural boundaries and that a good Samaritan went and took care of a Jew? Change in nature. Saul of Tarsus. Who was the most violent man in the New Testament? Saul of Tarsus. What did he turn out to be according to 1 Thessalonians 2.7? A gentle nurse. A gentle nurse are the titles he chose for himself. A mighty centurion of Italy. What was his first problem meeting Peter? A mighty, go read what it took to be a centurion in the Roman army. You can read all about it. Google search it. From Italy, occupying in a foreign nation where they can easily outnumber you, he was a stud. Cornelius of the Italian band. When he met Peter, a redneck fisherman, that when he spoke sounded rather illiterate, what did he do? He fell down and worshipped him. Are you kidding me? An occupying centurion worshipping a Jewish fisherman? A jailer in Philippi of Macedonia abused Paul and Silas, and one hour later washed them and fed them with joy in his whole family. Jews from all over with very different backgrounds had total peace in the massive church of Jerusalem. Do you remember? There were 15 different locations that they had come from, and they were converted, and that church exploded to 20,000 members in just two days' time, and they all got along peacefully from house to house in joy and unity. All things were common. They would give up anything to help a brother. Unbelievable! like a wolf and a lamb. Right. See, none of you know me, but my Father knows me. And that Father knows me. Jews and Gentiles hated each other, but they embraced liberty to love one another. Christ ends all differences. There's no male or female. There's no Scythian. There's no Greek. There's no barbarian. There's no servant. There's no master. It, all those things disappear in Jesus Christ. Amen. International peace like the United Nations is not the prophecy, but Christians at peace. That statue they have in New York City outside the United Nations was sent to us by the most violent nation on earth and it hasn't changed a bit and it's the Soviet Union. They sent that. Here's the application. Look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18. This is so important for us. I told you that Isaiah 11 is the best chapter we've got to so far because of its content about the Lord Jesus Christ, its density about Him and His kingdom, because it's every verse in it, the applicability, because there's things we can actually learn and apply, and the heresies that we're delivered from in it. One chapter, only 16 verses long. Listen, look at this. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 3, Verily I say unto you, this is our king, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, 
ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's the word of my king. You say, what's a child like? They're humble and they don't hold malice. 1 Corinthians 14 says children don't hold malice. So you better get down off your high horse. You are absolutely worthless in here. Every single one of you should know that you are the least important person in this church and you have no value for us at all. Get over yourself. Humble yourself. And get rid of all malice. Why would you ever remember something negative about another person? Get over it. Let the gospel change your nature. Jesus wasn't relying on regeneration in this passage. He was telling men what they were supposed to do because of his kingdom gospel. Without joyful, loving, peaceful unity with Christians, you are Esau. Without peace, no man shall see the Lord. You're like Esau. You're not like Jacob. We want to choose to be like Jacob today. Bitterness will will spring up and defile you if you hold on to bitterness. Only the devil holds on to bitterness. Jesus doesn't hold on to bitterness. He orders it out of us. Regeneration takes it out of us. The gospel tells us to drop the rest of our flesh and to get over ourselves. It's so important, brethren, this lesson here. We don't just want to know that the Zionists are wrong. We want to know what we ought to do to fulfill this passage. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Look at Psalm 15. Do you want to know about who goes to heaven? It certainly isn't someone that's baptized. Psalm 15, who goes to heaven? It's not someone who made a decision for Jesus. It's not someone who believes election and predestination. Here's who goes to heaven. Psalm 15, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, there's the righteous reign of Jesus Christ, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. That's the girdle of his reins. Can you follow me? He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, never does anything evil or unkind to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. He never says anything negative about another person in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. If there's a Christian in our midst, we love them. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, he wouldn't want interest on a loan, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. That passage should be put in your margin beside 2 Peter chapter 1, 5 through 11 to make your calling and election sure. That's the character of the righteous. Some Christians come from selfish, hurtful families and genes, and they don't understand peace. But see, God's work of grace and God's gospel should change us. God's grace and God's gospel should change us. Like belly worshipers, most churches have snakes. See, Paul wept over the church at Philippi because they had belly worshipers. Belly worshipers mind earthly things. That's one problem in a church. There's always belly worshipers. We have belly worshipers in our church. All they care about is this life. All you have to do is look at them. You all know who they are because they don't care about spiritual things. They don't care about you. They don't participate. They're deadbeats. All they care about is their little worthless lives in this world. That's a belly worshiper preached against them for the last 20 years. But then there's snakes. Snakes bite. 
Snakes have venom. Snakes are bitterness. Snakes hold grudges. Snakes hate. Snakes criticize. Snakes only see evil. Snakes evilly surmise in all their thoughts about everyone. Snakes never kiss. Snakes never hug. Snakes aren't happy. Snakes just have a forked tongue darting out of their mouth, and they're in most churches, and we have snakes. Their nature hasn't been changed. They come from families that are wicked, proud, arrogant, hateful, critical, negative, and so they live just like them. But see, the grace of God doesn't allow for snakes. So they're not saved. And you know who they are. You know some of them. You don't know all of them. You know some of them. All you got to do is look around. They don't care about other people because they're selfish. All they think about is themselves. By their actions and by their words, by their zeal, by their participation, by their joy, there isn't any. They're snakes. David knew that there were snakes because he called them strange children. Because their right hand is a right hand of falsehood and their mouth speaketh vanity because they don't tell the truth. They're fake. See, the real citizens of Zion love their king and love each other. And it is impossible to love the king and not each other. The Bible makes that absolutely clear in 1 John 4 and 1 John 5. You cannot say that you love God and you don't love your brother by outward actions, embracing him and helping him in his life and enjoying him. Because we're all blood-bought children of the Lord Jesus Christ. David knew it. Good pastors know it. Good pastors continue to feed the snakes, pet them once in a while, maneuvering them into position when God and he will cut their heads off. So if you ever wonder... Why does the pastor allow that snake in our church? If the snake had any affection by the rest of you and would cause you any harm, I would cut now. But when no one really cares, I can allow a long time. And I have before. And I will again. And I trust God. So I dung around fig trees that don't bear fruit and I feed and preach and try to be kind to snakes, and eventually God will give us the opportunity that the head is just, I I need to have it perpendicular to my axe, so that when I swing that axe, off comes the head. And yes, it's happened many times before, and it will happen again. I am asking right now by preaching, I wish that the snakes would change. I wish that the snakes would just look in the Word of God and realize they don't measure up. And when they stand before this king, this king is going to confront them about the wickedness of their hearts, why they would ever hold a grudge and bitterness toward another person and bring up a reproach against another person. It is amazing. It's hard. It's hard for some of you that grew up in loving, peaceful families to understand that there are black hearts that do not know how to love. You say, show me the Acts in the Bible. Okay, turn to Philippians. I hope that some of you that have learned Philippians remember this passage. Philippians. Here's one Acts falling in the New Testament. 
notice the difference. Let me just, Philippians 4, 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for. See, this is how Christians relate. This is how Christians think of each other. Dearly beloved, long for, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Great verse. Verse 2. I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul called out two women in public. Paul called out two women in public when that epistle was read in the city of Philippi to that church. He named names and confronted those two women that they weren't conducting themselves like Christians. And we have read about it for 2,000 years. And the contemporaries of the Philippian church read about it when this epistle was exchanged with their epistles in their churches. Two women that had a spat between them, they get named by the apostle in public. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. This should terrify you to think of the apostle Paul putting two names in a verse of two women who weren't getting along with each other because they're not saved. Wait till they meet the king of glory and he asks them about it. Unless they repent, if we repent, it's the greatest sign of a work of grace in us. Right. The ability and the desire to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. And I want to follow you, Lord Jesus. And we trust that Yodius and Syntyche did that. My brethren, you know I'm changing my plans for the day right now, and I have to. And that's okay. Our king by example and doctrine, requires us to grow with God and men. Jesus did. In Luke 2.52, if you are not growing by other people loving you more, if you are not growing by other people esteeming you more, if other people are not esteeming your family more and more, on what basis do you think you're a Christian? Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men because it's a choice and it is so simple. Love everyone. It's so simple. Loving favor is a choice, according to Proverbs 22 and verse 1. A good name is rather to be chosen than silver and gold, and loving favor above great riches. What is that loving favor to choose? Other people showing you loving favor by you conducting yourself in a way to secure their love. And that's how we all ought to get along with each other. Our king practiced that himself. Some have few real friends. Certain evidence they have not learned real love and peace. It's terrifying. It is sickening. It is maddening. And no wonder David prayed the way he did. You know, when it gets down to verse uh, Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 8, and it mentions that asp, and it mentions that cockatrice, those are snakes. And I started this off by telling you that by nature, I'm a snake. You know, I hate people. 
I hope all of you know that I'm very different from that and that I, and I, I love all of you and I love your kids. Listen, brother, I heard your voice. When Jubilee runs up and hugs me, it's Isaiah 11 and verse 8 being fulfilled in my little life. And I love the little girl. Hayden hugs me the hardest of anyone in the church. Hayden, Hayden attacks me. You know, and it blesses me. She always attacks me and says, Hi, preacher. The wolf. The leopard, the young lion, the bear, the lion, the asp, the cockatrice. Some of you men are husbands like that. I am tired and sick of marriages that are not the romantic hotbed of love, peace, unity, and pleasure and rest that marriages should be. Some of you men think that marriage was made for you too much. You've never heard a preacher preach it more than I have. But you had better love your wives, and you had better dwell with them according to knowledge. 1 Peter 3, 7. Or God, my king, isn't going to hear your prayers. My king gets very tired of seeing tears at his altar when a wife prays to him and has to pray with tears either out here or inside because her husband is too rough on her. What do you think your roughness proves? I'm going to tell you, okay, so I can save you the trouble. I'm going to tell you what your roughness proves. And I'm also addressing fathers who are overbearing and critical of their children and discourage them. What does it prove when you, when you try to be rough like that? That is not manliness. That is not leadership. That is not your God-given office. It proves that you are still, to some measure, a wolf, a leopard, a young lion, a bear, a lion, an asp, and a cockatrice. I wish all of you would change. I speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I can change, you can change. The Lord changed me a long time ago to be a pastor. I, am, I teach the submission of women more than anyone else you know. I teach the submission of children and the honoring of parents more than anyone else you know. And I'm only saying that to make this point. But I am warning you, you men that think you're something by being rough and tough, that is not manly, that is beastly. Try a little tenderness. I'd turn Elvis Presley on right now. If that's what would convert you, then I'd send you out the door for being a belly worshiper. But the word of God is what But the word of God is the word of God should change you. Right. When I look at this brethren, when I look at this passage, I don't want to be like the wolf. You say, "Well, how can you yell it like that? That sounds like a wolf howling at the moon." Well, I just want to make the point. The Lord doesn't want to see tears on an altar from a wife. My king will not hear the prayers of those who do not treat their wives tenderly as equal heirs of eternal life. According to 1 Peter 3, 7, every man should be examining himself. That woman next to you, she's trashed her life by marrying you. 
what are you going to do to make it a pleasant ride for her? A pleasant journey. Even one Christian spouse in a marriage calls that marriage to peace. You know, I get tired of men. And I, I know a lot of people that you don't know I know through our website every week. Men that want to know, will 1 Corinthians 7 give them an out from their marriage? Because it says, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. And I know it. And I teach it. However, do you know how the verse ends? But God hath called us to peace. Even with an unbelieving spouse, the believing spouse should make peace in that marriage. And if you're sitting here today, you don't have an unbelieving spouse. You have a believing spouse. What kind of burden is on all of us to love our believing spouses? Wives were made for husbands. You don't have to tell me about that. I've told you about that. But husbands are to show great love, as Ephesians 5 teaches. Shechem. Shechem told you how you ought to treat a woman. Speak kindly to the lass, to the maid. Song of Solomon certainly taught it. Didn't I preach on that a year or two ago about oral lovemaking in marriages? Meaning the way you talk to each other? Fathers, don't provoke or discourage your children. You're running right in the face of this king. This king wants you to be like this. He doesn't want you to hurt anyone. Verse 9, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. There are children and there are wives in this church, children first, afraid of their fathers. Wives second, afraid of their husbands. They're afraid to say certain things. They can't say it because you'll cut their heads off. I want to cut your head off. And I'm doing it with the rod of the Word of God. Sherry and I get tired of dealing with poor little wives that we have to tell them it's their role to submit when we would like to light up a chainsaw and take the head off their husbands. Only by pride cometh contention. Proverbs 13.10 Only by pride cometh contention. That is a fighting. That is a dispute between people. It's pride. Crush your pride. That's why we have to be humble like a little child, according to Matthew 18, so that we can all get along with each other, as we should. Every contention is always due to pride, so hate pride and forgive everyone. And I've read that verse from James 5, 9. If you hold a grudge, get rid of it as quickly as you can before you're condemned, because the judge stands at the door. That's my king. I'm his, his ambassador. He's speaking to me and he's speaking to you. Let me tell you the plain truth. There's nothing special about you. Nothing. You should think joy. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. Let's let our little children lead us. Some of you may wonder if I've gone to seed because we have a joy club. Some of you may wonder... Why were you out of your mind yesterday for three hours at Bible quizzing? I want little children to lead me. I'm not picking on you quizzers. You're big children. Uh, I want little children and bigger children to lead me. And I want all of you to be the same way. And we are as a church. When other people hear our truth, they want to come and visit. 
And this is true, and it's been repeated many, many, many times. They love the truth. They love the Bible emphasis. But when they get here and they see the joy and they see the love and the peace and unity and excitement about the Word of God, they are captured. And we want to keep them captured. And that's not why we do it. We do it because our king said to do it. Right. And we do it because we don't want to be a wolf. I need, every one of you, I need every one of you men to think about the way you talk to your wives. I need every one of you men to think, do you have children that are afraid to ask you for something because they know that you're just going to say no because you are just an obtuse, difficult, obnoxious, odious person. I need you men to examine yourself. Are you talking to your wife as tenderly as you should or could so that you're not a wolf? so that she feels totally at peace with you, that you're never going to criticize her unless it is absolutely the end of the world and someone could die. And I have to preach to my wife. She knows I'm not the wolf she married. It's all glory to God. Amen. What's an asp? A venomous serpent or snake, likely the Egyptian cobra. Did you get the lesson? I told you what an asp is. It's the only occurrence in the Bible. What is an asp again? A venomous serpent or snake, likely the Egyptian cobra. What is a cockatrice? An adder or venomous serpent or snake of some kind that we don't know. Or know that it's a serpent or a snake because of Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 17. The Oxford English Dictionary threw up a white flag and said we don't have the foggiest idea of what a cockatrice is. Very difficult but it's a serpent or a snake by the Word of God, letting the Word of God define it for us. So we can look at those, six, those verses 6, 7, and 8, and they describe the changed nature of creatures where that nature is instinctive. You know, we all have instinct, instincts by the temperament God gave us, the personality trained in us by our parents, the gene package that our parents gave us, how we were brought up in our home, what we heard all our growing up years. If we heard fighting and yelling, then we, we think fighting and yelling is normal. There's all these inputs. But the, the, word, the grace of God changes natures. Right. And it should change us. And the Word of God comes and tells us, change, repent. So let's change and repent. And let's let all things be new. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The peaceful character and conduct of Christ's kingdom would be gloriously different. The kingdoms of Judah and Israel, think about them as you've read in Kings and Chronicles. Were there assassinations all the time? Were there assassination after assassination? Was there betrayals, cruelty, violence, war, civil war? Did they fight and hate each other, steal from each other, take captives? Remember when the prophet had to stand up and, and tell Israel, you're going to take these 200,000 captives of Judah? Do you know what God's going to do to you for that? And they had one bit of wisdom. They sent the 200 back clothed and fed. They'll not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. What is that holy mountain? It's the Zion of the New Testament church gospel era. It's not the international peace of pagans because that's not the prophecy. God's going to burn them all up and make peace. The best way to make peace is to kill all angry people. It, it is. You know the Lord's going to do that. Peace is going to reign. He's going to trample all of his enemies. I want to be on the right side of that one. Amen. The holy mountain here is the New Testament kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Hebrews 12, which I told you you should never forget, teaches us. What are you doing to make sure there is no harm or destruction in the holy Mount Zion of the Bible? King Jesus ordered great efforts to preserve peace, endeavoring 
to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 3. Endeavoring. What is your endeavor? What do you do to make peace? It is an endeavor. It's not something you pray about. It's not something you pray for. It doesn't matter that you're at peace. Are you doing everything to make sure everyone else is at peace? Lord, help us to achieve that. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, and easily to be entreated. The wisdom that is from beneath is envy and strife, according to James chapter 3. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall see God. That's what I'm trying to preach to you. Grasp the connection here between a peaceful kingdom and the preaching of the gospel. Notice in verse 9 that in the middle of that verse, we have a coordinating conjunction for. So let's read it. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What is the knowledge of the Lord? We're supposed to be saying to each other, let us go up to the house of the Lord in the mountain of God to hear the word of the Lord and to know his laws for us. What are his laws for us? To live at peace with each other. So as the spread of the gospel went worldwide, all nations, nation, all nations, cultures, races, sexes, ages, professional jobs, masters or servants, bondmen are free. Guess what? They all sat together in a church of the Lord Jesus Christ and took communion and had common union with each other because it was all about the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign over their lives. See, that is a kingdom that is far more demonstrative than any earthly kingdom could ever be, and it has shown itself with power in this world. And here we are. Here we are. And some of you have come from the east. And some of you have come from the north. And some have come from the south. And some have come from the west. And here we are. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of our lives. Let's make sure that after today, we can give an account of him that we love his wisdom, we love his righteousness, and we love the peace of his reign. And that we will change our natures by what we can do practically because of the grace he's given us to change them vitally and because of Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.